You're listening to the Names Not Numbers podcast with me, Julia Hobsbawm of Names Not Numbers and Editorial Intelligence in association with the Financial Times. Thank you, Julia. Yes, um, I was delighted that Names Not Numbers moved to here because I've been coming here at least on holiday for nearly 50 years, uh, either to Thorpe Ness or Albra, and my mother, who's now in the audience, has lived here for 25 years and uh, used to run the Albra Cinema and started up the documentary festival here. Albra is full of really interesting people. One of the reasons she moved here was because she said the average IQ was so much higher than almost anywhere else she had ever visited. <laughs> At one point it had um, the former heads of MI5 and MI6 who had retired here, so that's a, that's a sign of what Albra is like. It's a really buzzing place. Uh, now, Julia describes these Bright Ideas sessions as capsule Bright Ideas to set off your inner light bulbs of thought. Uh, I prefer to use a food analogy. I think they're the delectable canapes or hors d'oeuvres before you tuck into the fillet steak of the proper panels. Uh, but those of you who've been to Names Not Numbers before will know that often they actually leave the most lasting memories. When you're on the coach back, you'll think, Funny, weird dance performance, that's really stuck in my mind. Or something that that astronomer said about black holes. They can be witty, they can be moving, enlightening, or plain weird, but they're always thought-provoking. So I invite you to treat each eight-minute contribution as like one of those little sherbet crystals that fizz and crackle on your tongue. So here goes. The first today is going to be Ed Caesar. He's a journalist and author. He specializes in long-form journalism, mainly for the New York Times magazine and GQ. He's working on a book about the quest to break the two-hour marathon. His favorite magazine piece of all time is about elevators. And he, ironically, is going to spend only eight minutes telling us why long-form journalism is better than 140 characters. Ed. Hello. <laughs> Even when the Bank of England cuts interest rates again, the BBC News team will wheel out an interview, interviewee they haven't talked to for a while. And when he gives his little interview, one word will appear beneath his name. Saver. John Smith, Saver. I worry about this guy. John Smith Saver has a particular job as far as the BBC is concerned. He needs to say how disappointed he is that interest rates have fallen. But this is why I worry about him. I worry that when he gets home that night having Sky Plus the news at six, that word will nag at him. Saver, saver, saver. Yes, he thinks, I am a saver. But is that all? I'm 61 years old. I live with a beautiful but cold-hearted Russian woman half my age. <laughs> I own a fantastic collection of John Coltrane records. I once auditioned for Cirque du Soleil. I have six fingers on my right hand. I invented Deal or No Deal, but Noel Edmonds stole the idea. And now, for the rest of my life, I will only ever see one word, savor, and it will gnaw at my soul. And so here's the question. Who can save the savor? The answer, I believe, is long-form journalism. It's sometimes called creative nonfiction. It's sometimes called narrative journalism. But it's, they're stories that are longer than newspaper articles, shorter than books, somewhere between 4,000 and 24,000 words. These stories are normally published in magazines, normally in America, although it's a great pleasure that some of the magazines in Britain that 
publish this work are involved with names, not numbers. So let's go back to our saver. He joins a litany of more famous characters who populate our short-form news reports in print and on television. Our tragic tots, our mums of one, our evil pedos, our brave boys at the front. You've all met them. Men and women whose stories can be told in a single epithet. The shorthand is necessary. It allows us to tell stories fast, but it also lets us down. It flattens people out. The saver is not just a saver. Of course, I'm not the only person to feel this way. There is a beautiful passage in Richard Ford's latest novel, Canada, which I'll read to you if you don't mind. The book is about an American boy whose parents commit a bank robbery, and they go to jail. Sometime after the crime, far away from his imprisoned parents, the boy reads a newspaper article about them, and this is his reaction. When I read the story that made our parents sound like any lifelong, luckless criminals the world would barely notice, then forget, as if this story was all there was to their lives, I felt an odd sensation in my chest, like a pain without an ache. Nothing that had happened to them had been in any way normal. Whatever changes had occurred in them and to them defied any idea I had of familiar. They looked like two people I knew, who I was once again seeing across a distance, some unspannable divide, much greater than the border that separated us now. They should have read that passage at Leveson, because it cuts to an important truth about newspapers. They can be dead right and dead wrong at the same time. The newspaper story in that passage is factual, but in important ways, it misses the point. We need deeper narratives, stories that are factual but explain the world in all its weirdness and complexity. And of course, you might say, read a novel, and of course, I do. But I also need some facts, beautifully arranged, and that's where long form comes in. Take, for example, this story, or at least the opening of it. It's one of the great stories ever published, The Things That Carried Him, by Chris Jones of American Esquire. It's a 16,000-word piece about an American soldier who was killed in Iraq and his journey home. The narrative is told backwards so that it begins with an account of a gravedigger. And this is how it starts. Don Collins stood in the sun and mapped out in his mind a rectangle in the grass, eight feet by three feet. He is 49, wears a handful of pomade in his hair, and no longer needs a tape to take the measure of things. In two sentences, I'm hooked. What's intriguing about Don Collins is that you have not met him before. He is not tragic or brave or saucy. He is not a saver. His character is an accumulation of detail, and as a result, you feel his presence on the page. And Chris Jones' story has 20 other characters, just like Don. To me, writing long form is the greatest challenge a reporter can set themselves, and reading it, the greatest pleasure. And once a day, for half an hour, I disregard the junky scratch of the smartphone in my pocket and read something big. How is this possible? We were told at the outset of the digital revolution that nobody would read long articles anymore. In fact, the reverse is true. Not only has the internet widened the boundaries of what you can publish in this seemingly infinite space that we have at our disposal, but it, we have also surprised in ourselves a wish to be more serious, as Larkin nearly said. Because, in fact, because of the technology that was meant to destroy our attention spans, we are now seconds away from the greatest arsenal of reading material you could possibly wish for. It comes at a cost. 
Long form is expensive to produce and to edit properly, but it's not expendable. To me, it's never been important, more important than right now. And here's why I, why I think that's so. We live in an, un, in an untethered age. The internet has allowed us to have more access to information and other people, bits of knowledge and bits of people than at any time in history. Despite this, it's possible we're fooling ourselves to how much we really know. Consider Philip Schofield and his list. Consider Sally Burko and her megaphone. They're only the most egregious examples, but they point to an important truth that somewhere in the social media frenzy, the falcon has lost the falconer. The reality is, important facts about someone's life don't jump into your iPhone. Facts are coy. They require you to go out and knock on doors and make telephone calls and have a working understanding of how people behave. Long-form stories may not always be utterly correct, but they are reported at length and with vigor. Three fact-checkers worked for a year on Lawrence Wright's recent New Yorker piece about Scientology. That is some commitment to facts. And even this is not enough. Facts are one thing, the truth quite another. Joseph Mitchell said, you can write something and every sentence in it will be a fact. You can pile up facts, but it won't be true. Inside a fact is another fact, and inside that is another fact, and you've got to get to the true facts. John Smith's saver is a fact. It's not necessarily the truest thing you could say about him. So, what the best long form offers is depth, accrued through a steady accumulation of tiny moments. And perhaps for this reason, long form works equally, equally well when it investigates big subjects, an unexplained death, the USA's drone program, as it does when a writer scours in a seemingly unimportant story, a stolen magic trick, the origins of the bikini. My favorite long-form story, as Mary Ann pointed out, is about elevators. A final thought. There's a new novel coming out later this year by Colin McCann, published by Alexandra Pringle, and the book's called Transatlantic, and it's really wonderful. The opening chapter is about the first crossing in an aeroplane from America to Ireland by two British airmen called Alcock and Brown. And in the following passage, the two airmen sight land. Rising out of the sea, as nonchalant as you like, wet rock, dark grass. They cross the land at a low clip. Down below, a sheep with a magpie sitting on its back. The sheep raises its head and begins to run when the plane swoops. And just for a moment, the magpie stays in place on the sheep's back. It is something so odd that Brown knows he will remember it forever. The miracle of the actual. Good long form is full of such moments when odd details strike you with the force of a revelation and stay with you forever. They are brimming with what McCann calls the miracle of the actual. There is so much more I could say and an irony given my subject, but I don't have time to say it. But here it is in 140 characters. Turn off the phone, read long form, there is still time. Uh, thank you very much for that. It is inspirational. We should just switch things off and read for half an hour a day, and I think I'm going to start following your example. But why does it always have to be in American publications, and why is there so little of it left in Britain? Is there simply not the money to feel, be able to I feel self-conscious about this because I'm the publishing director of Condé Nast is looking at me, but the, there are, 
there are publications that do it in Britain, but it's just so there is more money, there's a bigger audience, and there is, a, I feel, a greater seriousness about this stuff in the US that we've lost somewhere along the line here. But there are still places that do it here, there are just less. But there is no one here that can employ three fact-checkers for a year, is there? In fact, they don't generally employ fact-checkers at all in Britain. Um, no, and who knows, maybe in five years' time, the New Yorker won't be able to do that either. But, uh, yeah, it's primarily a, an American thing. And do you think that people... I, mean, I know it's happened to me, and I'm sure it's happened to a lot of you in the audience. My concentration span is definitely shorter than it used to be because I'm so used to going on Twitter and Facebook and emails and multitasking and that sort of thing. Is it possible to retrain our minds, do you think, back in, to be more patient, to think, yep, here is something 12,000 words long, I'm not going to check my phone in the middle of it, and I'm going to get to the end of it? I don't know. I, I certainly... I'm a huge fan of my smartphone... I check it all the time. My wife is always nagging me. Um, but I have periods in my day which, for which there is, no, there is no way you could get in touch with me unless you called me on the house phone. That, which, yeah. when I'm sitting in a big chair with the light over the top of it, because, you know, life is too short to tweet every second of the day. So the answer is we should all be less connected, okay, <laughs> on that note. Make deeper connections. Or make deeper connections, exactly. I'm now going to introduce Dennis Stevenson, uh, who has been chairman of some of our biggest companies. He's also a great starter-up of companies. He's a member of the House of Lords. In fact, he also used to run the House of Lords Appointments Commission. And he's led a very brave campaign to make it illegal to discriminate against people who are mentally ill. Dennis. Thank you very much. Um, eight minutes. Eight minutes. Uh, I'd like your watch, please, because I've forgotten. I've been in this Jubilee Hall many, many times, because until recently I was chairman of Auburn Music, which uses it all the time, but I've forgotten there wasn't a clock. Thank you. Um, uh, uh, bright idea. It's lovely to be described as being a bright idea. It's a bright idea. It's Ed Caesar, Dennis Stevenson, the, the third group. Um, and I thought, come here, what the hell is the bright idea? And I'm just going, on the basis, you should summarise what you're going to say, first of all. So Basically, it's not such a bright idea. It's, to me, flipping obvious, but not... First of all, just as a matter of fact, mental ill health is now the leading illness by far in the world, even if you take out all the unhappy Europeans and North Americans who don't have a clinical illness. Second, um, uh, of whom there are millions and millions and millions who've been told they got an illness by the witch doctors, who are sometimes called psychiatrists. Um, second, um, the, supply, the medical supply side is in the foothills of understanding, which doesn't mean to say there aren't really good people. You're going to meet a really fantastic guy tomorrow called Ray Donan, who is one of the very few people, I think, in that space who is world-class and quite outstanding. But basically, they don't know much. That's true of a lot of areas of medicine, but they really don't. Third, there is cautious grounds for optimism because of science and changing of social attitudes, but we've all got to be behind that optimism and make it happen. So that's, that's the bright idea. It's not a bright idea. It's just a statement of something really important. Now, start with some facts. One in four of us, I mean, there, there are statistics, statistics and damn lies about the incidence of mental ill health. Most of the people involved in the mental health industry overstate the figures. My best shot at it is that one in four of us during our lifetime have a clinical illness that is not medicalised unhappiness. There's nothing wrong in being unhappy, I mean, it's, and nothing wrong in seeking help for it, but it is not the same as being clinically ill. One in 20 of us at any point in time have a clinical illness. So, you know, wherever you're all working, think how many people of your colleagues currently have a clinical illness and it's not recognised. Um, three in four of us have a clinical illness during our lifetimes in our immediate families. So 
Those are astonishing facts. Furthermore, there is huge, co huge in my new jargon word, comorbidity with heart and cancer, which is to say that if any of us get bad news on a heart or cancer thing this afternoon, we won't be very amused by it. There's a greater chance of a minority being tipped into a clinical illness than there would be otherwise. So those are facts. The other fact is there's been virtually no investment in scientific research in it. Why is that the case? Because until recently, there hasn't been, it isn't because of stigma, there hasn't been science to invest in. And that has all changed. Now, let me turn to the reasons for good news. One, I've just gone on to it. Because of genetics and brain imaging, there is the prospect of getting to the bottom of what is a perfectly normal set of illnesses. You could take 100 people with a certain form of schizophrenia and genetically sequence them, find out what's going on in their heads through brain imaging. And it's like cancer in the late 50s, early 60s. When I was a child, if my aunt Mita got cancer, I'd be told not to tell the neighbours. Was it infectious, stigmatised, etc.? Um, science came in and there's been a dramatic improvement in treatment. That is the prospect uh, for this area. Second bit of good news, the process of destigmatizing has started. Um, what title do I, authority do I have to talk to you about this, I should have said. Well, first of all, about 20 years ago, I suddenly realized I suffered from, well, didn't suddenly realize, I suffered and had suffered all my life. It's a normal thing to realize it in retrospect from so-called endogenous depression, i.e. depression for which there is no obvious external cause and presumably is chemical, but no one quite knows. As I was asked a few years later if I'd appear in government advertising on mental health, and I did. It was the only brave decision I've ever taken, and it was only brave once because everyone said how wonderful I was. Um, there was a campaign with Alistair Campbell, me, and six starlets, none of whom I'd ever heard of, much to my children's disgust, and I've done it quite a lot since. As a result of that, I got involved in things, and I've just, uh, Marianne referred to it, I've just pushed through a private member's bill uh, which uh, makes and um, removes discrimination on mental health grounds from a number of areas of our lives. You know, we've done age, gender, sexual orientation, da 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 da. Uh, mental health is the last bastion to go. And by the way, here's this for the wonderful Charles Walker. I never thought to hear myself say that a good looking right wing Tory MP with nice fitting suits, quite unlike that very good looking right wing Tory MP sitting there, uh, <laughs> I, I, I would become one of my closest friends. Charles Walker is totally wonderful. About four or five months ago, he's complete, he stood up and told the House of Commons he was a walking fruitcake. You may remember there was huge publicity about it. And the important point is not that he's brave enough to do it, but he was, but the following week, he was elected chairman of a rather important select committee. Uh, if that, I mean, he told his colleagues what a nutter he was, and he got made uh, elected. So the, the things are improving. Now, um, I, how am I doing? Oh, sh sh I mean, I've got about three more minutes. Right. Um, just um, uh, let me now give you the bad news. Um, the bad news is that uh, the medical profession is really woeful. Definitions don't exist. Depression doesn't mean anything. Schizophrenia doesn't mean anything. And all the work coming out of genetic sequencing suggests there's no patterns emerging. And this is nothing, I mean, most illnesses got defined symptomatically in the 19th century, cancer being a very good example. And as science has come in, they've been systematically um, breaking them down. And so we now know there are all sorts of different forms of cancer, et cetera, et cetera. But um, uh, there's, a, there's a problem of definition. Second, um, there is a, 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 a reflected in astonishing siloization that there are people called neuroscientists, people called psychiatrists, people called psychologists. It takes longer to train to be a psychologist than a psychiatrist, the medical training. Um, yet there's no, very little crossover between the two. There's a few heroic people who are normally the leaders in the field worldwide who've done both, but they operate in different silos. Third and most important, if you walk off the street today and go to someone with depression or being ill or something, and you go to someone called a psychiatrist, he or she, uh, there will be a small minority 
who will actually believe in all the different approaches to dealing with it, whether they're um, pharmacological, whether they're talking therapies or whatever. Um, most of them um, will basically prescribe pills. Nothing wrong in that, um, as long as they don't um, bullshit you with the technology, because um, we don't know why these pills work. No one does, by the way. Um, but most of them will faintly disapprove of talking therapies. One or two of them may have telephone numbers you can go to. If you go to people called psychologists, they will say truthfully, oh, well, we can't prescribe drugs, which is true and mad. They should be. If you have 10 years training, you should be allowed to um, talk how to prescribe drugs. Um, a large majority of them will faintly disapprove of drugs. And so you don't have, if you go to a heart person, he or she may have different views, but they'll have the entire range of techniques and tools under one roof. So it's really not very good on the supply side. What is that? And um, that's the bad idea. That's not the good idea. It's just a statement of fact. And it's going to lead me to my last bit, which is in this audience, there will be a load of people here who have suffered from clinical illnesses. A number of you are suffering as we speak from clinical illnesses, I have no doubt at all. Um, if not, you're the exception that proved the general rule. And uh, I've learned a thing or two about what to do in that situation. First, use your common sense. The medical supply side ain't that good yet. There are some really good people, by the way, who are doing their best. Most of them, I think, would agree with what I've just said. Second, it's probably true of all medicine, but um, you should definitely seek multiple opinions in this area. Um, you don't get a total view of holistic treatment under one roof. You get different views and different people. You should use your common sense and go for it. Third, uh, <laughs> if you're younger than I am, and some of the members of the audience are younger than I am, there's one or two who I think are the same age, one or two older, um, just be... Um, have the following grain of optimism. It is changing very fast. Science is, the, the investment is now going to be made in science. It's what I'm doing with the, the um, I didn't think I told you. I've also, as well as putting a private member's bill for, I've started what is the Fetri of the World's first mental health research foundation. There are two small family trusts in America, but amazingly, apart from that, there are no mental health equivalents to big cancer, heart, um, other medical charities, and with the help of the mighty Welcome, who tapped me on the shoulder and asked me to do it two or three years ago, I've set up um, a, a mental health research foundation, which is the most scary thing I've ever done, because it's a responsibility and it's very difficult. But it is all going to change. So, I had supper a few nights ago with a friend of mine, a rather well-known journalist, whose brother is a paranoid schizophrenic, whatever that means, and it probably doesn't mean anything at all, by the way. But he said, what's the advice? And I said, very simply, follow it on the web, because there are big changes. Now, I've done my eight minutes, madam. I'm, I'm not sure you've heard a good idea. You've heard a total passionate conviction that being mentally ill is just the same as having a frozen shoulder or a heart problem. Um, um, not to be confused with being unhappy and just, you know, feeling a bit cheesed off with life, but the, the clinical illness. You've heard my strong conviction that we're in the foothills of understanding of what's going on. Don't be fooled by medics trying to be more authoritative than they think they are. Third, should any of you be troubled, which you will be, or your children or your friends, keep your common, common sense about you in dealing with multiple opinions. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> among you may see me sticking off. I was always going to have to leave, but I'm leaving in a hurry because I have to get back to London to see a newly engaged son. So just, I'm not being rude, or, or uh, I, I, I'm not an early leaver. Congratulations for Thank him. You. Thank you very much, Sir. Yeah. Um, I'm intrigued by this notion that 
not enough people are doing research on it. Because it seems to me, A, it's very widespread, yeah. as you said. B, it's a sort of medication that you take for a very long time. Now, we heard recently that not enough research is being done in developing new antibiotics because mm. if you only take them for a week, it's not really in the pharmaceutical company's mm. interest. But surely um, antidepressants are extremely lucrative for well, With antidepressants, yeah. Um, like many medical breakthroughs, they stumbled across, across them in the late 50s, early 60s. They, um, they didn't know then why they were, they don't know now. There have been very few developments from them. That is not a criticism. It's bloody brilliant they found them. And don't believe all the stuff about antidepressants not working. That's crap. Of course, not all drugs work for everyone, so there'll be a minority they don't work on. Um, but basically, there, haven't, there hasn't been, there isn't a huge investment in research. And the reason is very simply that if, if the most famous bipolar person in the world it might take to be Ted Turner, when he gave, do you remember, you're too young to remember when he gave, but you're not, no, you're old. Uh, when he gave a billion dollars to, to uh, uh, your parents might have told you, but, uh, they, 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 but the, when he gave a billion dollars to the UN, if he'd given it to mental health research, it couldn't have been honestly spent. But genetic sequencing and brain scanning changes it. So that's in front of us. Okay. Hmm? One last question. If your son, say, uh, was hmm. suffering from mental hmm. illness, would you advise he tell his employer? Hmm. Um, it would, basically, uh, I would hope that my son would be working for an employer, um, to whom the answer would be yes, but it's, 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 a, it's an acid test question. Um, I was really, Charles Walker, the MP, who stood up and said, I'm a walking fruitcake. He actually asked my advice two days before, um, was doing it. I said, don't, Charles. And he said, well, you did it. And I said, yeah, but when I did it, I was in my early 50s. I was successful, rich. I had a good, happy infrastructure. What was I going to lose? Um, I didn't have to go and ask other men and women to vote for me. To which he said, and I don't mind, I don't think you mind me. He walked around the room. He said, well, what can they do? They can just deselect me. Too bad. Now, um, that was a brave, thing he, a brave thing he did. But the answer is it depends on the employer. But increasingly, you can. Employers, it really, I'll bet you inside Vodafone, if, uh, there's, I'll bet you a moment there is a 31-year-old manager who's one of your high flyers who's suffering depression. And if he or she fessed up to it, there should be, and you should go back and check that this is the case, if he or she fessed up to it, um, it would not only not do any damage, but probably improve their career. It depends on the employer. Okay. It's a good question. Thank you very yeah. much, Dennis, and to Ed. That was the Names Not Numbers podcast. There are many more on namesnotnumbers.com. Thank you for listening.